magic of the sunstone, you're tuned into the Jewel Riders Archive. Hey, Jewel fans, I'm Chris. And I'm Ronnie from the Jewel Riders Archive. We are here today with a first time guest. We and we're super excited to have one of the writers of the show with us, Mr. James Matson. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Super happy to have you. I'm really curious what initially got you into writing. Because I know you, in our previous conversation, you'd mentioned um, studying English at Stanford. What kind of led to that interest? You know, I always wanted to be a writer, even like in grade school and high school. But I also, I went, I have a degree in English from Stanford, and I went to the film directing program at UCLA, and I thought I wanted to be a a film director. But I think my personality is much more writer than director, because I always think of the right thing to say five minutes later or or the next you know i'll go home and i'll think of the the good comeback or the right thing to say um so i did the directing program i was making a student film that to pay for it i was doing a a low budget feature which was um very ambitious and probably too ambitious for me um the best, the highest paying jobs I could find to help pay for my feature were animation cameraman. So I, I spent a couple of years being an animation cameraman for special effects animation um, and trying to write on the side. Um, then I got animation jobs and my contacts were animation. So then my first writing jobs were in in animation. I wrote I wrote for a show called Bump in the Night that ran on ABC. And I think you mentioned that you'd seen Bump in the Night. Um, uh, yes. Yes, um, I had. And I have to say, that was one of my favorite cartoons. Um, For our audience, if you're not familiar with Open of the Night, you definitely need to check it out. Um, It is a stop motion, you know, modern cartoon. So what I initially was drawn to was, I mean, I love stop motion. And this was kind of around the time that I think Nightmare Before Christmas was also coming out. So there was a little bit of a resurgence in the popularity of the feature. you know, using that type of animation. And so when it came on TV, I mean, I was just mesmerized it by it. And and more than that, it was also the fact that it took on this kind of, I, I guess campy is the best way to put it. Yeah. It's, 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 it's almost like in the, in the vein of like James Whale. Like I would imagine that he would have wanted to create such a feature. And um, personally, I mean, I love all things camp and I love you know, those classic horror. And so to have this little character who's basically like, you know, the little man who lives under your bed and a whole story about all of his cast of characters, it was just amazing to me. I loved it. It was so original. It was so fun. The fact that it was stop motion. So, yes, it was a favorite cartoon of mine growing up. I'm going to have to... I'm gonna have to check this out. You do, and I have one I've of them. I've never DVDs. seen it, yeah. It's amazing. It really is. It's so cute. 
Yeah, my I think you mentioned my f- favorite script was called Night the Living Bread, where yes, it's, it's sort of campy. Yeah. And I remember the the network executives saying, I hate uh, movie parodies like this, but and I and I never approve them. But this is really funny. So I'm going I'm going to approve the, this concept for for the show. But so. Well, I'm so glad. Otherwise, we would have had to chalk it up with over the rain and part of your world where something else was cut by a studio executive yes. who just didn't understand, you know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Of course, the one that did that I wrote, um, I think it's called The Wash Rag of Squishington, or it, it was at one point where um, one of the characters washes his face and his face comes off in the wash rag and, and the, uh-huh. the cockroaches find it and start worshiping it. And it was funny. It got approved. I think it got shot. And then the uh-huh. network censors looked at it and went, this is a Shroud of Turin uh, story, right? Oh, no. <laughs> so there, there, I didn't get fired, um, but there, were, there needed to be some rewrites and reshoots where it was. It, we pulled back on the Shroud of Turin uh, reference on that one. Oh, too bad. See, and I love that type of like tongue in cheek, like, you know, referencing, you know, pop culture. And and the thing is, is that I think that it really had a captive audience of a very particular type of child. You know, maybe those children who grew up with the classic monsters or who are very aware of pop culture. And so we really appreciated things like that. Um, but, you know, for the everyday child, they probably just didn't get it or they just thought, oh, it's funny. Like, you know, but for a child who is more aware, like, you know, that's the reason why I loved it. I, I just yeah. absolutely adored it. And if you, th- you know, even Bugs Bunny had multi layers of meaning that kids liked it, but adult, you know, Bugs Bunny would do drag um, often mm-hmm. and all sorts of levels of, of humor. And I think Bump in the Night had that, had that too. Definitely. I mean, you mentioned Bugs Bunny, um, you know, being someone who worked in the animation industry, I'm sure you have your classic favorite animated um, characters. But for me, you know, I love Disney. Little Mermaid is one of my favorite movies, and I love their animated features and, of course, their theme parks. But animation-wise, Looney Tunes, specifically, as you said, Bugs Bunny, um, Tex Avery, all those, oh, yeah. you know, creators, for me, they stand out a thousand times better than anything that Walt Disney did. You know, like Tex Avery is just so funny, like Red Hot Riding Hood, all of those classic featurettes. Like I just, those are my favorite ones. So I think that you can obviously tell what kind of things I enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're just plain funny. (laughs) Exactly. It's it's actually been really nice because the Tex Avery cartoons are being re-released by the Warner archive finally on Blu-ray. So it's like beautiful. Yeah. I heard a podcast a with them them talking uh, talking about doing the Blu-rays and yeah they they sound great. Definitely need to go to Amazon and pick it up. <laughs> I know. And so to backtrack a little bit, you talked about working as an animation cameraman. Now, were these like shooting cell animation pieces or did you ever shoot any of the stop motion? I worked for a small company that that did mainly uh, titles for films and for TV commercials. So like our 
the biggest title I worked on, the Schwarzenegger movie Total Recall has has um, really quite quite beautiful main titles that were um, stop motion and streaks that we that we created and, and shot. Um, we did a lot of shiny spinning TV station logos that. Oh, those were uh, such a big thing for such a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can do shiny chrome in my sleep right right now. Of course, you'd need to reinvent the animate, you know, bring back the animation <laughs> camera. And, um, mm-hmm. But we did. We also did uh, TV commercials. Like I remember being the cameraman on a Fred Flintstone cereal commercial that we like a fruity so we, pebbles commercial. Yeah. And then it, the the ad agency saw it and decided Fred and Barney looked too overweight, <laughs> and we luckily it wasn't my. But we had to reshoot it because they they were worried that that the message was uh, eat the cereal and you know it, it, get fat. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there was there was a, re- a reshoot. So um, yeah, I I really got a wide. A wide variety of animation um, experience, and then I would get. I I wanted to write, and the high-paying jobs at that point were supervising productions in Asia. So I, the first overseas job was I was effects supervisor in in uh, a city called Shenzhen, China, which is is near Hong Kong. Um, for uh, ABC TV uh, version of Wizard of Wizard of Oz, it, it, you worked on that. I did sparkles. Oh my and, gosh! Sparkles I, and zaps. For that's <laughs> another. That's another of my favorite shows. Um, oh, I love. Well, what I loved most about it was the fact that the art and the music were the original 1939 film. So that's what I really love about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean the story plot. I don't know. Did you work on the stories? No, or I, just, okay. I did only only special effects animation. Okay, for, for before that. I drag it so, through the mud. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, for me the storylines aren't quite as captivating. Um, later they created a another. It's not based on the MGM series, but recently they've released another Dorothy um, and. Oh, I forget what the title of it is. Anyway, it's about three years ago or so that they made this other animated series um, based on The Wizard of Oz. And I think that the storylines are just so much nicer and they're so much more captivating. But going back to the 90s animation, like, I love the music. I love the artwork. I just love the fact that it's so reminiscent of the original movie, 1939. So, yeah. yeah. We definitely, at that point, it was a copy of, we had a copy of the video that we would, pour over for the look of, of stuff and yeah i remember spending a week looking at glinda's bubble to try oh to match <laughs> match the look of glinda uh, glinda's bubble um and it was i was in shenzhen about six months on that on that project and and it was it was very interesting i'm still friends with a couple of the the chinese staff members um who've done very, very well. Um, one of them owns a company that does, you know, some sort of internet um, uh, Chinese American services. So it was, 
yeah, it, it was fun. Um, but and then the next the next job there's a feature called Thief and the Cobbler. Oh my gosh, that, I love that. <laughs> that I was part of the scab. <laughs> they took they yes, took it they, away from, from from. It's such a, a, a sad story. The director um, Richard, Richard Williams had worked on it for over 20 years, and it was his dream project. Um, Warner's gave him money to make it. Um, he spent the money. The film was only two thirds finished and the, they took it away from him. Um, and they sent a team. I was in Bangkok for six months and there was another team in Hungary, um, finishing up, um, the, the, the movie. And, um, but that movie has, I still believe it has some of the best minutes of animation that have ever been done. Cause it, he was, he was so brilliant. Um, the problem is the overall story never hung together and right. Yeah, it was, it was troubled. Yeah. Like even, you know, even if he had finished it himself, I think the story still might've been a little bit of a mess. Yeah. I've seen the work print and which is a little better than the one that was released. <laughs> um, also, it was finished, and then Harvey Weinstein at Miramax bought it for U.S. release, and there was a horrible recut where the thief character in the original script was mute. He he never spoke. They, they Harvey Weinstein hired Jonathan Winters to do a voiceover to express the thief's thought, and I lo- I love Jonathan Winters, but it's it's like sitting. Uh, in front of someone annoying at a movie theater who's talking all the way through. Oh my um, gosh! Yeah, it just it it wrecked wrecked the movie. Um, but uh, another another again to that. To that I was going to say an, another executive who thinks that they knows what's best and tries to you know overrule a decision that the creative person who's in charge has made. Yeah, I yeah. find I it interestingly. I, though, I find it so interesting. What? Oh, there's. I know fans yeah. in the last few years have made like a version of this film that they recut called like the Recobbled Edition mm-hmm. that I've been meaning to get my hands on and check it out. Yeah, that one I I haven't seen, um, and I imagine because there were some some not very good songs added. Yes, in the reshoots, also that, <laughs> and I imagine they got pulled and. Um, you know, it it might be better. <laughs> I remember seeing it initially and just thinking it was so beautiful. And but the story, yeah, there was never a, there was never a completed script on it, and the story just um, never never hung together on it. So I'm going to interject for a moment here. A couple of thoughts that I've been harboring in my head. Um, so you know, Jim, it's so funny that you should talk about. You know, initially you were discussing about going to film school and from there you decided, okay, well, you know what, it looks like the way that I can utilize what I learned is basically through camera. Was there a passion or was it something that you kind of learned because of a necessity that you went into that field? That's that's one of my first questions. So I'd like to hear that. You know, I always loved animation and I always 
because in high school, it was sort of a choice. Do I become a, a scientist or do I become a writer? And animation production, there's always both art and science in it. That it and I was, I was interested in it and I was the cameraman. There's a degree of concentration you need that's, that's exhausting because, um, if you make it at that point, there was no way to, to correct a mistake that you could be shooting on a scene for, for like literally eight hours. And then if you made one mistake at the end of eight hours, you pulled the film out of the camera and, and started <laughs> and started over. Um, so I, I loved the technology of it and the, the craft of it and, and the art of it. Um, and was always a, an animation fan, so it was a good fit for me as both as a as a job and something I, I was I was interested in. Okay, um, and then something else for our listeners with you know a lot of the technology changing, especially in the '90s when when you know you're you're in the field um, starting out. Um, if you can kind of explain some of the processes, because especially when we're talking about stop motion, like bump in the night, I mean, immediately my mind kind of goes to something like a Ray Harryhausen, you know, mm-hmm. sitting in his studio shooting it frame by frame um, versus, you know, now it's all computer manipulated. And also when we're talking about hand-drawn animation, like The Wizard of Oz, as an example, and you're talking about the special effects animation. Um, again, some studios like Disney were starting to use digital, you know, computer um, animations. And so other studios were still doing everything by hand and then, you know, laying over that special effects, whether it was a cell or whatever it is, over, you know, the original animation. And then that was being photographed. So to kind of give a little bit more context to our listeners, like, can you explain the the process and maybe a little bit more specifically what you were in charge of? Yeah. In the early nineties animation was, there was no computer animation being done, done at that, that point. So the things I worked in were still hand, hand drawn, hand inked, and then painted, painted cells. I think I know one of the, the Chinese studios I worked at had worked on Little Mermaid, um, but they were Little Mermaid had a little bit of computer paint in it. Yes. Um, but even even then, it was mainly conventional ink, ink and paint. Um, so it was, yeah, the the camera you would shoot, shoot things one frame at a time and for um for bump of the night there they were puppets or puppets on armatures on wire armatures that they would move them one one frame at a time they move it a tiny bit take a photograph move it a little more take a photograph and then when you play that back at at 24 frames a second it looks like they're they're moving um and the creators of bump of the night they had worked on uh, there was a reboot of the Gumby series, so yes. they had worked a, a year or two on the Gumby re- reboot, which was also shot on film, um, kind of old style um, stop motion. So, so they were were they were funny, very funny guys, but very good at at um, at stop motion. 
Um, but something like Wizard of Oz or um, Princess Guinevere and the Jewel Riders were the animators drew it on white paper with pencil. Those shows you then Xerox the lines onto a clear cell. Um, you, painters would take that clear cell and paint, kind of do paint by numbers where they're filling in the areas. And then the cells would come to me in the camera department. When I was the, the cameraman, I would shoot, I would shoot it. Um, as the effects animator, like on Wizard of Oz, there were a lot of twinkles, sparkles. The witch did magical zaps. <laughs> I, I was I was the the king of sparkles for 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 that. <laughs> That's shoot. a great title. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where and that was <laughs> right. you would you would f- film it, run the the film through the camera once, and and do the animation. You'd rewind the film, and then you would add my it would be a double ex- exposure and you would add my sparkles, my twinkles, my, my zaps to, to that. Um, and there'd be a lot of testing for that. Um, although I showed up in China, I think we were like two weeks from the first air date on, on ABC Saturday morning is the, the, per, I replaced someone who wasn't, yeah who the 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 footage wasn't coming out um so it was a really stressful couple couple of months with desperately trying to finish the the um the film and it would be be shipped to LA and they they'd have to transfer it overnight and it would be on Saturday Saturday morning uh, TV the next the next morning um my goodness but, such a yeah. schedule it yeah there just was a real handcrafted element of of, of the an- animation then, and I always enjoyed um, uh, like uh, Princess Guinevere. It was a studio in a city called Suzhou, China, which is about ten miles out of outside of Shanghai, and I went. I think I was there for about six weeks setting them up on the effects animation for that, for that show. Um, and Princess Guinevere was, it was conventional ink, ink and paint on, on that too. Um, but I always enjoyed walking through the paint department and watching. Uh, it was main, mainly women at that point painting you know, painting these cells and they, there would be racks of drying cells and um, just it, it's, yeah, it's so both industrial and kind of a craft and um, a lot, a lot to keep track of. Is this Hong Ying animation in China? It was that the name was. of the studio? Yeah. They also, did they also call themselves, it was like golden dragon or, I think they had it, a number of names. Yeah. yeah. It okay. Was, it was owned by um, Wong Film, which had the main studio was in Taiwan, but it was a, a offshoot of, of them. Yeah, that's the name that they're credited as in the in the end titles. So that's the only name that we've ever known oh, them okay. by. Yeah. Right. 
you know, when you're talking about all these things, um, again, if we have Disney fans out there, the immediate thing that I think of is somewhat of like the reluctant dragon, like the behind the scenes studio tour of the studio in the 40s, like seeing all these ink and paint women and seeing the camera department. And it's like my mind, that's immediately what it goes to. And I'm sure it had changed by the 90s. But I think that in my mind, it's always kind of that timeless studio experience so you know when you're talking about filming the scenes and whatnot like the way that i see it as there was this like you know large area where you could put down the background and then you put the cell over the background and then you bring down this glass like a screen or something it goes over the cell and then it takes a picture mm-hmm. because the suspended camera is above it or whatever it might be is that the same setup or had things changed by that point? No, it was exactly done that way in the early early 90s, both here in L.A. and in in the Chinese studios. It, uh, yeah, it it the because the animation cells had a specific set of pegs. And in the 90s, we were still using the same markings as they would have done at Disney in the in the 40s. Um I, I remember seeing uh, production sheets called exposure sheets from Disney Productions from the 40s and thinking, oh, I, I could shoot this scene today if I had, <laughs> oh my if gosh. I had the artwork. And, right, if uh, you had all the original assets. That's so yeah. funny. Well, Chris, until, what we're uh-huh. – Until computers changed everything by the late 90s, it was – yeah – the difference was they they sent it to Asia because at that point the labor was so much cheaper than 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 here was was why it was sent sent overseas. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, Chris, we're going to have to include a link, a YouTube link, either that or I'll share it um, to the 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 clips that I'm thinking of, like the behind the scenes tour where they show the animation camera that way any listener can can see it. Um, Jim, also, when you're talking about the double exposure, I think for my you know, in my head, I often think of double exposure, special effect shots more for live action. I honestly never thought about them from animation. So was that to give it like an opacity that, you know, a typical painted cell didn't have? Or why did you double expose? To usually to add a glow, to make something glow with a soft edge on it, you could at sometimes that's done with paint and airbrush for the painters, but on something like Oz or Princess Guinevere, they wanted it to glow with a very soft, soft edge on the things that are glowing. So it, we were actually using a a, a light box with with backlit. Um, the, that pass, all you would see was the the zap or the sparkle um and it would be black all around and just um just the sparkle would be superimposed over the the rest of the the scene cool so Um, neat i love it and on something roger rabbit changed the look of animations because everything had uh shadows the characters themselves had shadows on them to add dimension to them and then the so the look of, of animation in general and 
this is my theory, but I, I think I'm correct here. It changed after that. So we would do multiple passes to add uh, add the, the character shadows too often because it would be easier than, than painting the shadows in. You would do uh, uh, an exposure with the, the character and then another exposure to, to darken part of the, um, the, the character. Um, mm -hmm. That it, yeah, fairly easy to do, although conceptually, yeah, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to explain. And it, yeah, it, if you made a mistake, it would look really, really bad too. <laughs> but, that's always the risk that you run when you're double exposing film. Like how you said, you've already shot the one layer of it. Now you're double exposing it. And if you mess up, well, now you're going to do the whole thing over again. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. But oh look at, goodness. like, Fantasia has the most beautiful animation special effects work ever done, I think. The yes. night, and night on a Bald Mountain sequence has this, the ghosts and the spirits are superimposed over it. And it looks like there's even like a ripple glass added to make them ripple. I, I'll sometimes go through it frame by frame and try to figure out how they how they they did everything um mm -hmm. and that obviously was 1940s on on that right yeah no fantasia i love fantasia for the special effects if i'm awake and not tired i will watch that movie however if i'm tired oh it's it's the bedtime lullaby for me yeah. because it's just it's so soothing and so beautiful to look at soon you find yourself just falling off to slumberland but yeah Specifically, when you were talking about those ghosts in Night on Bald Mountain, at least from the photos that I've seen, it looks like they bent the cell artwork and were double exposing the shot. But they had it kind of like like on a rounded, I don't know, like a drum or something so that like when they oh. were like, so that's why the ghosts look like they kind of like pop out at you and then like and float away. So you're you're definitely right. Right on that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so fun. I just, I love animation so much. So from Wizard of Oz and working in, in China, um, from there, where does the story go and when does Guinevere come in? Well, one of the producers on Wizard of Oz uh, worked, she was an executive for a company called Deke. D -I -C. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar with. <laughs> and Deke produced Wizard of Oz. Um, yes. And then she was one of the producers on uh, Princess Guinevere. So I, she had liked my work on, on Oz on effects. And I met with her and said, um, I would love to work on the show on effects. And I'm also trying to start w working as a writer. Um, and, and she she, as I remember, she sent, I had a sample script that she, the creator of the show was a man named Robert Mandel, and she sent Robert my sample, and he liked the sample, and so I, I got hired both for effects and to write the episode that I, that I wrote for, for Guinevere. Um, I love it. Which yeah. is Lovestruck. Lovestruck is the it episode is. That, yeah, mm -hmm. that Jim wrote. Now, when you say she, does she have a name or is she like the she? She, <laughs> she is, I, I should, uh, Winnie Chafee. Oh, the, yes. Okay, Winnie. Um, yes. And she, God, I just, I, I just saw an announcement that she has a new show right 
now, and I'm blanking. I want to say it's an animated version of Harriet the Spy, but I I could be wrong. Could be wrong on that. Um, so um, no, she's a, a terrific terrific producer. Um, was uh, I th- grew up in in Taiwan and and but worked in the U.S. most of her her career. So she worked a lot as a go as like a go between between the uh, Asian production companies and the the sort of Western staff. She did some of that, but like for Deke, she was she was just uh, uh, or not just she was a, a creative producer for okay for Deke. Um, that um, was was obviously I think had worked in animation. If I remember right, she her first job was on Tron the the disney feature um doing um tron had it it was all special effects on film and it had a lot of copying live action film onto black and white cells if i remember right she was was uh worked on those um those cells Um, is that how they did the backlighting for all of the the costumes and stuff oh okay yeah, and they got the glows, and they, and it's part of why that movie looks so cool, but so so odd is that it's, <laughs> it's all been been re or or the the inside the Tron stuff has all been been re recopied. No, that movie definitely like so many special effects movies is a cult classic. Yeah, yeah, I think it's more fun to look at than I know a lot of people love it as a movie, but um, I yeah, I like it more as an effects movie than than as a than as a movie. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, then I would take yeah, I would take the overseas job. Finally, after Thief and the Cobbler. I had enough money to just write full time and try to have have um, scripts to um, to to sell. And at that point, I had a friend who I'm is still my writing partner today. Um, my friend Barbara had she was working on a novel. I was writing an action movie that wasn't going very well. We had lunch and I had a a live action comedy idea and Barbara had such funny ideas for it just over lunch that we said, you know, let's write that, that one in our spare time. And of course that's the one that sold. um, Yeah. There, there was a bidding war for it. It it sold to Disney and we've, we've been been working together mainly in live action um, ever since then. And it was people still Disney owns it outright. It was never made, but it was a a live action comedy called Fluffy about a man who who finds his perfect woman and her cat hates him and tries to kill him. It's it's man versus cat for and um, yeah, ultimately he realizes the cat is just being protective of his owner and they they reach an understanding. Um, But it it um, Disney thought about making it. They put it. Yeah, they canceled the project. DreamWorks actually tried to buy it from Disney and Disney said. You're suing us over 
over Katzenberg. We're not selling you this script. Um, and it, yeah, it's still in the base, it's somewhere in the basement. Oh, no. Script, <laughs> script archives. But, but we, yeah, Barbara and I did work for Disney feature animation for about a year. Um, we were adapting a version of the Hans Christian Andersen story, The Nightingale, never produced. And I think we... We weren't the first writers on it, and we weren't the 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 last ones. Um, but the 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 most fun part of that job is then we finished the script, and then for a couple of months we worked on a project that Roy Roy Disney, um, I guess it's Roy E Disney, um, uh, was producing. So we got to have meetings with Roy, and um, you know, hear hear Disney stories and. Um, and he was, it was, at that point, Disney owned the book, Mr. Popper's Penguins, that was, later it was turned into a Jim Carrey movie, but at that point, Disney wanted to do a feature of it. So we we did a, a draft of, of Mr. Popper's Penguins for, for Roy, Roy Disney. Also ended up in the, you know, somewhere in the basement at, at, at Disney. I'm, I'm sure Dave's project to do all the work. <laughs> yeah. So Jim, then from you know basically saying, well, hey, like you know, I have a passion for writing, and and obviously I'm good at what I do. And Winnie hires you, and you're already in China. So, like, do you start getting animation? Do you get scripts? Do you get style guides? Like, what what is the jewel writer story? There was um, for the script. There was a complete Bible. There were the character sheets. And my episode was, I don't think it was an, part of the overall story arc. I think it was was no, more it, or less of a, a standalone, feature, yeah. standalone episode. And I, as I believe that I pitched them the story concept and they liked it and said, yeah, right. Write a draft of that, and um, and they, I, I'm sure I did a draft and then a rewrite, and then it it went it went into into production. Now that um, episode is like a slapstick comedy episode, and now it it all sort of makes sense to me with your background writing comedy. That that yeah, I lo- I, I I love comedy, and yeah, it. Yeah, it probably is more slapsticky than the rest of the the, the rest of the series, to, which is is funny. I mean, personally, like I I love the episode. I think it's like a kind of a breath of fresh air, just to have the characters be so over the top. <laughs> yeah. Well, not only um, that, but it features Drake. So, was it something that you saw potential to feature the main boy protagonist, or why why? And that's the only reason why Chris loves the episode so much is because he loves Drake and he's probably in love with Drake too. But, <laughs> you know, so so it's like, why did you focus on this character where the rest of the series focuses on the girls, basically? You know, I, I probably pitched them a couple of ideas and they probably had everything for the girls worked out already and probably me coming in with a story for one of the boys, they thought, oh, we can, we can add, add that in and that'll, that'll fit. Yeah. It's like, it's like an unexplored corner, basically. Yeah. 
of that of that, you, that universe. You had given examples of, you know, your background is comedy. Um, do you remember anything else about the creation or the writing of the of the script of Love Struck? You know, I I I remember a note that the and I don't remember if it ended up in the episode or not, but the note was um, the toy company was was going to put out a toy with the horses that involved brushing the horse's mane. So the a note I had was to try to incorporate mane horse mane brushing into the episode <laughs> so they could <laughs> it would um, work with the the toy um, synergy. I, yeah, yeah. I remember thinking thinking that. That was that was pretty cute, um, <laughs> and um, no, I remember the the scripts are relatively short. They're about twenty pages because um, for both live action and animation, the rule is always that it's about a minute a page of script equals a minute of, of screen time. So I'm yeah, I remember conference calls. I don't know. I don't remember where Robert Mandel and his company was based. They may have been in in Vancouver at that point, but I I don't remember that. Um, I think they were based out of Southern California at the time, or New York. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the actors were from New York, but right. who knows? It's, and that it's makes unknown. Sense. Yeah, because I definitely did not meet with them in person here in LA. So they maybe they were in in New York on 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 that. No, I remember. I'm yeah. I it must have gone pretty simply and uneventfully because I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the horror stories that you remember. And I, <laughs> right. I, I remember being yeah having fun with it, being treated well, and. Um, it uh, it was good. Well, I guess I'm glad that there's no horror stories. Um, yes. Speaking of special effects, though, since that's obviously what you you know what Winnie fell in love with was was about your talent. What effects did you work on with Jewel Riders, or what happened with that? In the main titles, there's glowing. There's a glowing portal effect. And that was the, the the glowing portal was the thing that we we tested and that they they liked on on that. Um, and then it was you know even that show has twinkles and sparkles and and glowing zaps and abundance. One might abundance. say. <laughs> I remember um, being in Sujo with probably 20 people from the animation department with me explaining the the effects setup for the show and there would be a translator the chinese staff and you know me me holding up artwork and saying for for these portals you use this this artwork this exposure and um they they work this way yeah it it was um Things I did were things you couldn't do with conventional ink and paint, or, or we did some, or it would be ink and paint, but in an, an additional pass through the camera to to add them. 
I see. Um, and when you're saying portals, at least when you're when you're talking about the um, the main titles, the only thing that I can really think of though is on in the first season at least. Uh, I'm assuming. Did you go on to the work on the show during the second season, or was it only during the first season? Only in the in the first. Okay. Yeah. So in the first season on the opening titles, do you mean the like the episode titles or do you mean like the, the series intro? As I remember for the series intro, um, now okay. I, I haven't watched those in, in a long time, so I, I need to to re, re, rewatch them. I'd be interested oh. to see like actually what it was that you filmed. Like I'm I'm interested. Yeah. Can I look at it real fast? Of course. And, uh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. If you just type in Jewel Rider's intro. Okay. So like looking through it, there's the kind of swirling thing around the girls with stars where they're changing clothes. That that was me. I okay. did the like the smoke uh, pattern and the sparkles and yeah and then then the next shot she's one of the characters is holding up her arm and there's a, a golden glowing zap coming out of the jewel that that would have been that would have been me in in that um oh and then what i call a portal it's it's pink and it has kind of ray a rays pattern coming coming out of it that it's almost a moray pattern of rays that was me i'll send i'll try to remember to send you a screenshot of that and you know Um, you were mentioning about the script and how you know each of them were were so long and whatnot um i i don't know if you've had a chance to kind of look at our website or not but we do have a copy of the love struck script as well so if you'd like to see it again we have a copy because uh, i looked through um through my files and i i, yeah, I couldn't find a, i don't know what format i wrote that in because it's the screenwriting software has changed so um the, and then a question i have for you i don't know the story of why it was changed from princess guinevere to Starla. Oh, the fan favorite question. Go ahead, Chris. As far as as far as we've been able to discover or find talking with Gregatore, who's the show's art designer, it's basically it was basically like a rights issue. Like it's easier to trademark something like Starla in other countries outside oh. of the US rather than Guinevere. Because Guinevere exists as a public domain character. Right. But um, but I also sense. am like, but they spelled her name specifically in a way that uh, is different, different from the, the classic Guinevere. Right. The Guinevere. It's yeah, Guinevere. G-U-I-N instead of G-W-E-N. Right. Uh, but I do think that you're right. I mean, I think that it was an opportunity to have a more specific name that people might identify with the show, you know, rather than Guinevere. So it's Starla. But um, but what he was saying is that also it just translates better. So, you know, especially when you call her Princess Guinevere. But if it's just Starla, it's just easier just in all the different languages to be Starla versus Princess Guinevere. Because they hardly ever just call her Guinevere in the Jewel Writers. So... I see. I see. Yeah. That that does make sense. Um, and I 
and I'm asking you questions. Was there a Camelot? There was a Camelot connection in the show, or or there was a very vague Camelot connection. Well, Um, it started out. Yeah, it. There's a connection for this series that, strangely enough, goes all the way back to Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern. Uh, mm-hmm. And they were talking about making an animated adaptation of these science fiction books. But it eventually morphs into when that project sort of falls apart, it morphs into a series called Enchanted Camelot that is basically like a young princess Guinevere, like of the Arthurian Guinevere, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. And then from there, it moves into the sort of much more lightly Arthurian Guinevere in living in new Camelot, but there's still Merlin and, you know, and that's pretty much the extent of it. And there's the land of Avalon. (laughs) Yeah. There's the land of Avalon. There's also the lady, the lake that appears in the last episodes. You know, that there is a very, very thin Arthurian, you know, right. Morgana and, and well, I was going to say Archie for Archimedes, but I, I think that that's more associated with Sword in the Stone than King Arthur. Yeah. But, I mean, there definitely is a medieval Arthurian connection to it, but I think it's just been updated where, you know, the Crystal Palace has elevators, and although they still ride horses and have carriages, they also have TVs and other things. So, you know, it's just, it's kind of like a, a modern fairy tale, but... Set supposedly sometime, we're never sure. We're never really know yeah. if it's the current time period, which I think it kind of is because in the French sticker book, it even says like, you know, oh, once upon a time and knights and dragons. No, our story takes place today. And imagine our heroines going out to the disco after they save the day. So that's the way that the French book described it. Yes, specifically the disco, <laughs> which is my favorite piece of that. Which is fun. You know, when you think about it, it's almost a steampunk sensibility where you can mix, mix and match technology and um, and classic elements. Steampunk, yes. But I would say, you know, it's funny when we talk to fans and, you know, a lot of times when I talk to people on the street and they ask me, oh, you know, tell me about the Jorars archive and I have to explain to them what Jorars is, I immediately default to, oh, it's kind of like She-Ra meets My Little Pony meets Sailor Moon. Like, that's always my description of it. But the truth is, you know, Sailor Moon and She-Ra have a very... I don't know if gender neutral is the right word, but it's not necessarily girly. Mm -hmm. And while I think that a lot of studios out there were very hesitant to put out girl shows, you know, everything kind of had this mixed gender audience. It seems as though Jewel Riders was unabashedly feminine. And whether that created a strong audience in young girls and young gay boys and that select Mm. few straight boys but it just it was something that that's why we love about it it's like you know the fact that it is kind of you know campy in its own way of having this very i like to think of her as a dominatrix i know chris doesn't but (laughs) the, the villainous you know she wears leather and she's very campy and she's sexy like that's what I love about this villainess. And then to have the heroines, the pack, like, 
you know, all these defenders of the kingdom, like you can identify with each of these characters. And of course, you know, Chris found his own little, you know, uh, a love interest in Drake. But, you know, I while I never fell for any of the boys, I still identified with the girls. And I was like, you know, Tamara is my favorite character because of or I love her hair or I just want to do what she does. And so mm-hmm. for me, it, it was the it was the the design of the show. It was the way that the story was written. It was a quest episode. It was not just girly. It wasn't like, you know. Barbie and the Rockers, the animated series, which is, you know, amazing. But it's, you know, it still had action. It's still, you could look up to these heroines. So that's what we love about the series. Yeah, it's not I would quite say. as dark as the She-Ra animated series tends to be. Right. Which is really nice. And I don't know, I love, I love Guinevere as a heroine because they let her, they let her be a little bratty. Like, which... Yeah. You know, what what child kind of can't identify with being a little bratty sometimes? Right. She doesn't have to be like a model, like necessarily she doesn't have to be a model character. She can just be a character. And I think that that really comes through in Carrie Butler's performance. And it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it being a a project aimed more more at girls because for kids, kids projects, the rule in in a lot of studio meetings has always been that girls will watch boys projects but boys won't watch girls projects so default to boys if you know given given a choice um, right and they they defaulted to the to the strong to the strong girls in the in this show Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a fascinating production story. It really is, because exactly what you're saying, I think that, you know, when when Robert Mandel was creating this, while the first few episodes are, I would say, very gender neutral, I mean, they're not heavily focused for girls, but I think that, you know, whether you're a boy or a girl, you would watch this. But I think that many boys would see it more as a girl's show with the unicorns and the princess and things like that. But exactly what we're talking about with the toy aesthetics, where you were told, you know, we're going to create the unicorns to have brushable, you know, tails. So make sure that that's a point in the show. Um, You know, they didn't create necessarily boy toys. They were making dolls. But again, that's something that we love about the show. We love the fact that they are dolls, but they're not necessarily fashion dolls. Um, you know, they were like little action figures with hair. And I think that that's one of the reasons why Chris liked them, because he's always leaned more towards the boy toys. But I liked them because they still had doll aesthetics to them because I well, love it was It was nice because I, as a child, I could buy them. And it's not like buying a Barbie. And, you know, mm-hmm. you don't have to convince your parents that hard to buy a Jewel Rider toy <laughs> versus a Barbie. Right. Like. So it was like there. it's something that you could have that was sort of slightly cloaked. As that they're they're not dolls, they're action figures. Exactly, they're action dolls. <laughs> yeah, Chris, how long did you say that for? <laughs> I mean, but they really are very action figure. They have molded bodies in the in their shapes of their clothes, and and yeah, really right. the only doll things are the deluxe. Strip it all away are the the deluxe ones with their their clothing and you know the fact that they have doll heads and brushable Pretty hair dresses yeah which is always why they were my favorite ones of course <laughs> you know 
that um, and who was the toy company was it um it was kenner kenner that. kenner i mean well at that point kenner was owned by hasbro oh okay because i remembered i remembered it being hasbro but i i wasn't sure that i remembered um uh correctly so yeah so, so <laughs> hasbro well then later pretending that kenner is a brand <laughs> i was gonna say later kenner went out of business and they're only the the name is only ever ever used on you know re-releases of the Star Wars figures and other action toys. But yeah, I mean when we're talking about the the toy and the and the production, um did they ever send you like any references like oh this is, you know, features that we're doing on the toys other than just the brushable hair or I know you said that you were given like the character specs in in the show bible. Like did you have anything else that you referenced when you were working on the show? There would have been, yeah, there would just would have been uh, artwork for all the characters. So I knew what everybody looked like. And I like I would have known how hunky Drake is as a as a, a character. Um, but no, I, I wouldn't have been sent the the toys. Um, OK, they may not have been. Because we were probably in production, at, you know, at least six months, if not a year before it premiered. So um, the toys may, may not have been finished yet. Now, Chris, you're going to have to look at that link. Um, was this 1994 or what was this draft of Lovestruck? Because I know things <laughs> like every this, time. This draft is dated for 1795. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, you're kind of right, Jim, because it came out in September and this particular episode would have debuted later. So, yeah, I guess it was about six yes. or seven months. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. Did you have any influence? I know that you said that you were given the the character designs and whatnot, but something that has always stuck out with me about this particular episode is the characters wear costumes that they never wear again. Were you ever like influenced by any of this? Like, did they ever ask you for opinions or was that a different department? You know, I don't remember them telling me don't create a new, or sometimes they will say, you know, don't create something new because it'll be a problem that we have to design a new costume. But they were totally accepting of whatever, whatever I created for the, for the episode. Story-wise. But did you do like artwork? Like, did you do concept art or anything like that? No, I would have, would have had a description. Yeah, it would have been one sentence in a, in a description. Some, yeah, sometimes they'll go, you can't do that because we would have to design a whole new a whole new set of wardrobe for that. Um, and I don't remember anything being sent back for for changes because they wanted to reuse um, other other wardrobe. I think it's interesting okay. in the in the script, you know, when it talks about where they first appear with the with their new outfits on, it just says both are wearing party dresses, but party is in bold. Which is like, was that a reference <laughs> to the toy parties? Party dresses. <laughs> I that I don't remember. I would have because done it just are... just to call attention that when mm-hmm. the designer is skimming the script, they okay they see that. 
Because I know with like the oh, style guides, you know, they have their references for all of their different outfits and wardrobes. So, Jim, after Jewel Riders, I mean, as kind of like a, a ending recap, what, where did you go from there and, and where are you now? I've been working as a screenwriter since then. Yeah, Bar- Barbara, my writing partner, and I have sold a number of spec scripts. The feature that was produced, there's a, a movie uh, called Deliver Us from Eva with um, LL Cool J and Gabrielle Union in the leads that was made um, from, from, our, from our script. Um, and it's on, it's on Peacock right, right now, streaming, streaming free. So it was fun to go to the premiere of, of that. And um, we've sold, I've, I've heard a statistic that the studios buy 35 scripts for every one they make. So a number of our scripts are in the, they bought it and never made it. We did, we, I like romantic comedies and we were selling romantic comedies and about 10 years ago, the market shifted where there were so many flop rom-coms that they weren't selling. So our, our agent told us, you know, the market has shifted. The studios are looking for intellectual property. Um, they're looking for books. So Barbara and I took two years off from screenwriting and wrote a book series called Oh My Godmother that Disney Hyperion Press published. And it's it's about a, an ordinary 12-year-old girl who accidentally becomes a fairy godmother. And fun <laughs> fun and hijinks and, and sue. Yeah, she she accidentally damages the wand arm of rival at school's fairy godmother. And kind of karmically she has to fill in to do the the fairy godmother uh, duties on that. Um, and that was really fun. We did, there were three of them published and we got to do school visits and bookstore visits. And I loved, because they were the, audience for those is eight to 12 year olds. Um, and it was, you know, it was fun getting letters from kids saying they liked it. And um, we, it's almost like me with the, the, the Princess Guinevere episode, not quite remembering that we would go on uh, school visits and the kids would remember much more about my, my own book than I, <laughs> than I did. <laughs> well, why did that happen? <laughs> I'd have to say, oh, can you, what page was that on? Refresh my memory. (laughs) Refresh my memory. (laughs) Um, So we did those. And then luckily for us, we we started, um, Hallmark is still making romantic comedies. So we, a couple of years ago, a producer called our agent and she had just, parted ways with a writer and was desperate for a writer. And um, we've, we've done two movies with her. Um, The, the Christmas one is called Northern lights of Christmas that I, that should be airing. Hallmark repeats things a lot. So I'm sure it'll play between now and Christmas. It'll play six, six or seven times. Um, (laughs) Um, and that one woman, woman inherits reindeer farm, um, at, at Christmas. Oh my gosh. And we, 
Our other produced credit is there's a, a movie called Marrying Mr. Darcy that's a sequel to to a movie called Unleashing Mr. Darcy, where, where it's sort of a modern day Pride and Prejudice story with with dogs. Um, and and that was fun to do. So right now we're working on Hallmark ideas. We're pitching things and um, still still busy. Nice. Well, I well, will have to so definitely much. check out some of those Hallmark movies because they'll sound like a lot of fun for Christmas. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the fun thing about the Hallmark movies is I'll mention other things and people go blank. And then I say Hallmark and they sort of light up. I'll give the titles and they'll go, oh, my mom and I watched that. <laughs> and it, it, it's really fun. Well, you definitely did that for me when we were discussing all those animated shows that you worked on. I mean, did you ever think that you'd be sitting down with someone and they'd be like, oh, my gosh, Bump in the Night, Wizard of Oz, <laughs> Princess Guinevere, like all those shows that you worked on? I never did. So it's it's you no, know, you're I was was amazed that you had like the the Oz. I I rarely meet anyone who's ever heard of the the animated version of Wizard of Oz. So it's it's fun. Well, we appreciate all of your dedication to the animated industry all through all these years. And thank you so much for sitting with us today, too. Oh, thank you for talking with me. It's, it's been really yeah. fun. It's been a total pleasure to have you on the show. So if, you, if people want to find out more about your work, do you have a website they can visit? Uh, there's a website with my writing partner called it's browner matson.com b-r-a-u-n-e-r-m-a-t-t-s-o-n.com and i'm on twitter as james iver matson awesome we will link all of those in the show notes for any of you who want to follow james and his work and if you want to find out more from the Jewel Riders Archive, you can find us at www.jewelridersarchive.com or you can find us on any social media at Jewel Riders or at Jewel Riders Archive. And if you want to listen to more of these podcasts, you can find us at our home on Podbean or on any format that you enjoy listening to podcasts on. Thanks so much for being on the show, James. And as we always like to say... Friends together. Friends, Friends for forever. Ever. Bye, everyone. Thanks so Bye. much for listening. Hope you guys have a fantastic day.